Chapter Twenty of Vera by Elizabeth von Arnim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty. Her hand slid slowly off the knob. She stood quite still. How could he? And she knew now that he had bolted the front door, knowing she was out in the rain. How could he? Her body was motionless as she stood staring at the locked door, but her brain was a rushing confusion of questions. Why? Why? This couldn't be Everard. Who was this man? Pitiless, cruel. Not Everard. Not her lover. Where was he? Her lover and husband. Why didn't he come and take care of her, and not let her be frightened by this strange man? She heard a chair being moved inside the room, and then she heard the creak of leather as Wemyss sat down in it, and then there was the rustle of a newspaper being opened. He was actually settling down to read a newspaper, while she, his wife, his love, wasn't he always telling her she was his little love? was breaking her heart outside the locked door. Why, but Everard, she and Everard. They understood each other. They had laughed, played together, talked nonsense, been friends. For an instant she had an impulse to cry out and beat on the door, not to care who heard, not to care that the whole house should come and gather round her naked misery. But she was stopped by a sudden new wisdom. It shuddered down on her heart a wisdom she had never known or needed before, and held her quiet. At all costs, there mustn't be two of them doing these things. At all costs, these things mustn't be doubled, mustn't have echoes. If Everard was like this, he must be like it alone. She must wait. She must sit quiet till he had finished. Else. But, oh, he couldn't be like it. It couldn't be true that he didn't love her. Yet, if he did love her, how could he? How could he? She leaned her forehead against the door and began to softly cry. Then, afraid that she might, after all, burst out into loud, disgraceful sobbing, she turned and went upstairs. But where could she go? Where in the whole house was any refuge, any comfort? The only person who could have told her anything, who could have explained, who knew, was Vera. Yes, she would have understood. Yes, yes, Vera. She would go to Vera's room, get as close to her as she could, search, find something, some clue. It seemed now to Lucy, as she hurried upstairs, that the room in the house she had most shrunk from was the one place where she might hope to find comfort. Oh, she wasn't frightened any more. Everything was trying to frighten her, but she wasn't going to be frightened. For some reason or other, things were all trying together today to see if they could crush her, beat out her spirit, but they weren't going to. She jerked her wet hair out of her eyes as she climbed the stairs. It kept on getting into them and making her stumble. Vera would help her. Vera never was beaten. Vera had had fifteen years of not being beaten before she, before she had that accident. And there must have been heaps of days just like this one, with the wind screaming and Vera up in her room and Ever down in his, locked in, perhaps. And yet Vera had managed, and her spirit wasn't beaten out. For years and years, panted Lucy, 
her very thoughts came in gasps. Vera had lived up here winter after winter, years, 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 and would have been here now if she hadn't. Oh, if only Vera weren't dead. If only, only Vera weren't dead. But her mind lived on. Her mind was in that room, in every littlest thing in it. Lucy stumbled up the last few stairs, completely out of breath, and opening the sitting-room door, stood panting on the threshold, much as Lizzie had done, her hand on her chest. This time everything was in order. The window was shut, the scattered note-paper collected and tidily on the writing-table. The rain on the floor wiped up, and a fire had been lit, and the wet cushions were drying in front of it. And also there was Lizzie engaged in conscience-stricken activities. And when Lucy came in, she was on her knees poking the fire. She was poking so vigorously that she didn't hear the door open, especially not with the rattling and banging of the window going on. And on getting up and seeing the figure standing there panting, with strands of lank hair in its eyes, and its general air of neglect and weather, she gave a loud exclamation. "'Lummy!' exclaimed Lizzie whose origin and bringing up had been obscure. She had helped carry in the luggage that morning, so she had seen her mistress before, and knew what she was like in her dry state. She never could have believed, having seen her then all nicely fluffed out, that there was so little of her. Lizzie knew what long-haired dogs look like when they are being soaped, and she was also familiar with cats as they appear after drowning. Yet they too surprised her, in spite of familiarity, each time she saw them in these circumstances, by their want of real substance, of stuffing. Her mistress looked just like that, no stuffing at all, and therefore Lizzie, the poker she was holding arrested in mid-air, on its way into its corner, exclaimed, Lummy! Then, realizing that this weather-beaten figure must certainly be catching its death of cold, she dropped the poker, and hurrying across the room, and talking in the stress of the moment, like one girl to another, she felt Lucy's sleeve, and said, "'Why, you're wet to the bones! Come to the fire and take them sopping clothes off this minute, or you'll be laid up as sure as sure!' And pulled her over to the fire. And having got her there, and she saying nothing at all, and not resisting, Lizzie stripped off her clothes and shoes and stockings repeating at frequent intervals as she did so, dear, dear, and repressing a strong desire to beg her not to take on, lest later, perhaps, her mistress mightn't like her to have noticed she had been crying. Then she snatched up a woolen coverlet that lay folded on the end of the sofa, rolled her tightly round in it, sat her in a chair right up close to the fender, and still talking like one girl to another, said, now sit here and don't move while I fetch dry things. I won't be above a minute. Now you promise, don't you? And hurrying to the door, never remembered her manners at all till she was through it, whereupon she put in her head again and hastily said, Mum, and disappeared. She was away, however, more than a minute. Five minutes, ten minutes passed, and Lizzie, feverishly unpacking Lucy's clothes in the bedroom below, and trying to find a complete set of them, and not knowing what belonged to which, didn't come back. Lucy sat quite still, rolled up in Vera's coverlet. Obediently she didn't move, but stared straight into the fire, 
sitting so close up to it that the rest of the room was shut out. She couldn't see the window or the dismal rain streaming down it. She saw nothing but the fire, blazing cheerfully. How kind Lizzie was! How comforting kindness was! It was a thing she understood, a normal, natural thing, and it made her feel normal and natural just to be with it. Lizzie had given her such a vigorous rub-down that her skin tingled. Her hair was on ends, for that, too, had had a vigorous rubbing from Lizzie, who had taken her apron to it, feeling that this was an occasion on which one abandoned convention and went in for resource. And as Lucy sat there getting warmer and warmer, and more and more pervaded by the feeling of relief and well-being that even the most wretched feel if they take off all their clothes, her mind gradually calmed down. It left off asking agonized questions, and presently her heart began to do the talking. She was so much accustomed to find life kind, that given a moment of quiet like this, with somebody being good-natured, and back she slipped to her usual state, which was one of affection and confidence. Lizzie hadn't been gone five minutes before Lucy had passed from sheer bewildered misery to making excuses for Everard. In ten minutes she was seeing good reasons for what he had done. In fifteen she was blaming herself for most of what had happened. She had been amazingly idiotic to run out of the room, and surely quite mad to run out of the house. It was wrong, of course, for him to bolt her out, but he was angry, and people did things when they were angry that horrified them afterwards. Surely people who easily got angry needed all the sympathy and understanding one could give them, not to be met by despair and the loss of faith in them of the person they had hurt. That only turned passing temporary bad things into a long unhappiness. She hadn't known he had a temper. She had only so far discovered his extraordinary capacity for being offended. Well, if he had a temper, how could he help it? He was born that way, as certainly as if he had been born lame. Would she not have been filled with tenderness for his lameness if he had happened to be born like that? Would it ever have occurred to her to mind, to feel it as a grievance? The warmer Lucy got, the more eager she grew to justify Wemyss. In the middle of the reasons she was advancing for his justification, however, it suddenly struck her that they were a little smug. All that about people with tempers needing sympathy, who was she with her impulses and impatiences? With her, as she saw now, devastating impulses and impatiences, to take a line of what was very like pity. Pity, smug, odious word, smug, odious thing. Wouldn't she hate it if she thought he pitied her for her failings? Let him be angry with her failings, but not pity her. She and her man, they needed no pity from each other. They had love. It was impossible that anything either of them did or was should really touch that. Very warm now, in Vera's blanket, her face flushed by the fire, Lucy asked herself what could really put out that great, glorious, central blaze. All that was needed was patience when he... She gave herself a shake. There she was again, thinking smugly. She wouldn't think at all. She would just take things as they came, and love, 
and love. Then the vision of Everard, sitting solitary with his newspaper, and by this time too, probably thinking only of love, and anyhow not happy, caused one of those very impulses to lay hold of her, which she had a moment before been telling herself she would never give way to again. She was aware one had gripped her. But this was a good impulse, this wasn't a bad one like running out into the rain. She would go down and have another try at that door. She was warmed through now, and quite reasonable. And she felt she couldn't another minute endure not being at peace with Everard. How silly they were! It was ridiculous. It was like two children fighting. Lizzie was so long bringing her clothes. She couldn't wait. She must sit on Everard's knee again, feel his arms round her, see his eyes looking kind. She would go down in her blanket. It wrapped her up from top to toe. Only her feet were bare. But they were quite warm, and anyhow, feet didn't matter. So Lucy padded softly downstairs, making hardly a sound, and certainly none that could be heard above the noise of the wind by Lizzie in the bedroom, frantically throwing clothes about. She knocked at the library door. Wemyss's voice said, Come in. So he had unlocked it. So he had hoped she would come. He didn't, however, look round. He was sitting with his back to the door at the writing-table in the window, writing. I want my flowers in here, he said, without turning his head. So he had rung. So he had thought it was the parlour-maid. So he hadn't unlocked the door, because he hoped she would come. But his flowers, he wanted his birthday flowers in there, because they were all that was left to him of his ruined birthday. When she heard this order, Lucy's heart rushed out to him. She shut the door softly, and with her bare feet making no sound, went up behind him. He thought the parlour-maid had shut the door, and gone to carry out his order. Feeling an arm put round his shoulder, he thought the parlour-maid hadn't gone to carry out his order, but had gone mad instead. "'Good God!' he exclaimed, jumping up. At the sight of Lucy in her blanket, with her bare feet and her confused hair, his face changed. He stared at her without speaking. "'I've come to tell you—I've come to tell you—' she began. Then she faltered, for his mouth was a mere hard line. "'Ever, darling,' she said entreatingly, lifting her face to his. "'Let's be friends. Please let's be friends. I'm so sorry, so sorry.' His eyes ran over her. It was evident that all she had on was that blanket. A strange fury came into his face, and he turned his back on her, and marched with a heavy tread to the door, a tread that made Lucy— for some reason she couldn't at first understand. Think of Elgar. Why Elgar? Part of her asked, puzzled, while the rest of her was blankly watching Wemyss. Of course, the march, pomp, and circumstance. At the door he turned and said, Since you have thrust yourself into my room, when I have shown you I don't desire your company, you force me to leave it. Then he added, his voice sounding queer, and through his teeth, You'd better go and put your clothes on. I assure you I'm proof against sexual allurements. Then he went out. Lucy stood looking at the door. Sexual allurements? What did he mean? Did he think? Did he mean? 
She flushed suddenly, and gripping her blanket tight about her, she too marched to the door, her eyes bright and fixed. Considering the blanket, she walked upstairs with a good deal of dignity, and passed the bedroom door just as Lizzie, her arms full of a complete set of clothing, came out of it. Lummy! once more exclaimed Lizzie, who seemed marked down for shocks, and dropped a hairbrush and a shoe. Disregarding her, Lucy proceeded up the next flight with the same dignity, and having reached Vera's room, crossed to the fire, where she stood in silence while Lizzie, who had hurried after her and was reproaching her for having gone downstairs like that, dressed her and brushed her hair. She was quite silent. She didn't move. She was miles away from Lizzie, absorbed in quite a new set of astonished, painful thoughts. But at the end, when Lizzie asked her if there was anything more she could do, she looked at her a minute, and then, having realized her, put out her hand and laid it on her arm. "'Thank you very much for everything,' she said earnestly. "'I'm terribly sorry about that window, Mom," said Lizzie, who was sure she had been the cause of trouble. "'I don't know what come over me to forget it.' Lucy smiled faintly at her. "'Never mind,' she said and she thought that if it hadn't been for that window, she and Everard, well, it was no use thinking like that. Perhaps there would have been something else. Lizzie went. She was a recent acquisition, and was the only one of the servants who hadn't known the late Mrs. Wemyss, but she told herself that anyhow she preferred this one. She went, and Lucy stood where she had left her, staring at the floor, dropping back into her quite new set of astonished, painful thoughts. Everard, that was an outrage, that about sexual allurements, just simply an outrage. She flushed at the remembrance of it. Her whole body seemed to flush hot. She felt as though never again would she be able to bear him making love to her. He had spoilt that. But that was a dreadful way to feel. That was destructive of the very heart of marriage. No, she mustn't let herself. She must stamp that feeling out. She must forget what he had said. He couldn't really have meant it. He was still in a temper. She oughtn't to have gone down. But how could she know? All this was new to her, a new side of Everard. Perhaps, she thought, watching the reflection of the flames flickering on the shiny, slippery oak floor, only people with tempers should marry people with tempers. They would understand each other, say the same sorts of things, tossing them backwards and forwards like a fiery, hissing ball, know the exact time it would last, and be saved by their vivid emotions from the deadly hurt, the deadly loneliness of the one who couldn't get into a rage. Loneliness. She lifted her head and looked round the room. No, she wasn't lonely. There was still... Suddenly she went to the bookshelves and began pulling out the books quickly, hungrily reading their names, turning over their pages in a kind of starving hurry to get to know, to get to understand, Vera. End of chapter 20